Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be going around a couple places this morning, but we'll start out in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, in that neighborhood here in just a few minutes as we continue our series on the church. Here is the church. This is what a church is. This is what the church does. This is what, how God established the church and what he calls us uh, to do. As I said at the beginning of this series, you know, you being here on a Sunday morning communicates that you have some feeling about church, right? You feel like you should be here for some reason. Um, some of you, maybe of the younger crowd, um, you've been drugged. You were drugged here to church this morning, okay? And you'll get drugged back home when it's done. But I hope that this can be a, a help and a challenge to each of us. It doesn't matter if you've been in church uh, for a couple of years or your whole life. We need to be reminded of why does the church exist and what is my responsibility as a Christian as a, to a, in my relationship to God. Individually, because the church is the people, right? And then corporately, as a local body of believers. And so last week, we began looking at this, uh, the, these, these purposes of the church that God lays forth in his word. And so we're going to continue this today. You'll notice in your bulletin, uh, we're going to get all the way through the rest, Lord willing, here. Uh, there are six, six of these points. We did three of them last week. And so we won't take, we'll just do the briefest of reviews and remind us where we are and then we'll continue on from there. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word today. Father, we thank you for this time we have set aside in our service this morning to study the word of God together. Lord, we come as a church today looking into the word of God, asking you to show us what is the purpose of this gathering? What is the purpose of believers gathering together to worship? What is a church supposed to do? What are we as Christians, the members of the church of God, supposed to be doing in our own personal lives, and what are our responsibilities corporately? We ask that you would use your word in our hearts today. You would help us to be open and receptive to it. Help us, Lord, to not tune these things out because we feel like, well, maybe we've, we've heard all of this before, but help us to be open uh, to the new things that you're trying to do or the refreshers that you're trying to give us from the word of God. And Lord, this is our desire, that we would walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard the truth of the word of God and your Holy Spirit has applied it to our hearts. Lord, we ask you help us to take the next spiritual step wherever we may be today. May it be done to your honor, your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Now, this may sound like a redundant statement, but having a purpose for something requires you to be purposeful in what you do. Now, before you all cry out, well, duh, okay, let me explain. Consider, if you would, how many times in our lives we want to have a purpose without being purposeful. We want to get in shape, but we don't want to alter our diet and exercise routines, right? We have a purpose, but we don't want to be purposeful, right? As you can tell, that's me in life, okay? We want to increase our financial security, but we fail to budget and limit expenses. We want to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better employee, whatever, 
but we will not self-evaluate or make choices to that end. We want to learn to sharpen a skill. We want to make ourselves a better person at this or that, but we don't devote ourselves to doing anything about it. We want to have purpose, but we don't want to be purposeful. You see where I'm going? And so it is in the lives of our church sometimes. If we're going to fulfill the purposes that God has established for the church in the word of God, we are going to need to make intentional decisions as individual believers as well as a, corp- as a corporate body. Carrying out God's mission, God's way, is the responsibility of every believer as a member of the universal church that we looked at in the first week. So we need to continue to unfold, let us continue to unfold and embrace the purposes of the church. And as I told you last week, God's purposes for his church exalt his name on earth, expanding his mission in the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike. That's what the purposes of the church are intended and designed to do. They're not about making a specific local church or a pastor look like some saint or savior. They are intended to glorify and magnify God. Because as I told you last week, the most foundational purpose of a church is to what? To glorify God. That's what we're here to do. And this happens in the hearts of believers as we grow and change in the Lord. This happens in the hearts of unbelievers as they come to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and they accept him as Savior. Either way, the kingdom of God continues to advance. And that's what we're here to do. We're not here to grow the kingdom of Beaverton Baptist Church. We're not here to grow the reach, heaven forbid, of some pastor who came all the way from Atlanta. Okay, We're here to grow the kingdom of God. So we want to do things his way, right, and for his glory. And so last week we began looking at what is the church, I mean, what is the purpose of the church? What are the things that a church is supposed to do? And so here's the list of the three from last week. Number one was that a church is to glorify God. And I told you that that that's the basis and the foundation of the purposes, right? The foundation of the church in general is Jesus. We looked at that the first week. But the foundation of the purposes of the church, then, is to glorify God in everything we do. And that should be, again, foundational in the life of a Christian, as well as the corporate gathering. Number two, um, the, the purposes of a church, the purpose of a church is to teach biblical doctrine. Paul said that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So therefore... When you walk into a church, you should hear the word of God. You should hear it preached and proclaimed. You should hear it defended. In our own personal lives as Christians, that should be true too. That we engage with the word of God on an individual level. And number three, the purpose of a church is to build up believers. Now, one of the we talked last week about, about the services and the interaction and the fellowship of the believers. And one of the, the big words that I think I only mentioned one time last week is discipleship, of course. But that, that falls under this idea of, of building up believers. That, that in a church, you should find 
the opportunity to be discipled, grown in the ways of Jesus Christ. And again, let me, let me be clear. When Jesus calls us to make disciples, who is he calling us to make disciples of? Of Jesus, right? He doesn't call us to make disciples of ourselves. He calls us, thank goodness for that, right? He calls us to make disciples of Jesus. What did Paul say? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, if Paul said that, shouldn't we, right? That we follow and imitate him and we point others to him. And so in a church, you should be built up in the Lord. So let's continue today looking at what are the other purposes of a church. Well, number four is prayer. Now, there's a couple of passages here. I had you turn to the book of Acts. Just, just hold on there. Um, we'll get to that in just a minute. But I'll show you one here first. As we talk about, first of all, prayer's preeminence in our lives. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. It says this, pray without ceasing. Prayer is talking to God. It is entering the presence of the Lord to offer thanksgiving and praise, repent from sin, seek God's help, yielding our lives to his will and his ways. And one of the things we understand is God longs to hear his children pray. And so he delights in the prayers of Christians, of believers. And as Paul gets to the end of the letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, he, he does what he does in several of these letters. As he gets to the end, it's like he has all these things he wants to say. It's a boom, 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 boom. They just kind of come right at the end, okay? You, you have to go read it for yourself. But there's like these succinct little commands. And one of them is very direct. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, he says this, pray without ceasing. It's straightforward, right? It's, it's fairly uh, obvious. But at the same time, what does that mean? Does that mean that we sit down to pray and we just don't ever get back up, right? I mean, Paul said pray without ceasing, right? Please don't start praying when you're driving, right? Because you'll cease faster than you meant to, right? No, Paul commands here, what he's commanding here is that the church be ever in the mindset of prayer. That we never be far from the throne of God. Prayer is not limited to a time of day, a place, or an occasion. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have time in my day where I sit down and I talk to the Lord in prayer in a devoted time in the morning where I sit and pray. But I don't know about you, but that's not the only time that I pray. That's not what God calls us to do. So, okay, so when I'm sitting here on the couch at X time in the morning, that's the only time I can pray. Nothing else counts. No, we can pray to God any time and any place, and we should never be far from the mindset of prayer. We have then a duty laid on us by God to pray to him. Wherever we are, we can offer prayer to the Lord. We can praise him for the answers that he gives to prayers Throughout the day, we can seek his help at any time. We can praise God for his goodness and majesty any moment we witness it. We can yield our hearts and lives to God's control at any time, which if we were honest, we probably admit that we need to yield our hearts and lives to God's control more often than not, right? Because we face those moments where we just don't want to do what we know is right. 
It is the purpose of the church, then, to pray to the Lord. So in a corporate setting of worship, such as we are gathered here today for, we should pray. You know, we don't insert prayer into the services here because, well, that's a nice thing that churches are supposed to do, and we need to cover like five minutes anyway. So, you know, give or take, depending on who's praying, okay? We just need to pray. We pray in our services here to genuinely seek the Lord's will and way in our, in our hearts and lives and in the services and the things we undertake. If we want God to be glorified in what we do here, then we need to seek God out in prayer. We want to seek his direction. We want to submit our hearts and wills to him as we enter the service, asking that he work in us. And we see that the early church showed a pattern of devoting themselves to prayer. So you see not only prayer's preeminence here, but you see the praying together that the first the early church undertook. You're in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So immediately after Jesus ascended back into heaven, the core group of believers gathered together. What you have here in verses 12 through 14 of Acts chapter 1 is you have the disciples who are gathering to pray. And when I use that word disciples, I'm not limiting it to the 11 that were listed there who are becoming the apostles, right, at the formation of the church. But all of these people who believed in Jesus, you, you read there, there were women who gathered, there were Jesus' brothers who had previously rejected him not too long ago, have now come to faith in him. They are gathering in this room where they have been staying together, and, and they, we see that, that at this point in the book of Acts, the church age is preparing to explode onto the scene. But before it does, we have the earliest members of the church gathering to pray together. We must understand this group did not know everything that was to happen next. Jesus had instructed them as to what their mission was. He had given them everything they needed to know. He had promised to send to them the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower them to do the work of God. And in anticipation of these things, they devoted themselves to prayer. They sought God's work and direction in their lives. They sought to commune with God. Remember, up until just a little bit before this, they had physically been with Jesus. And now they were with Jesus no longer. The only way they could talk to him was through prayer. And we look at that and we say, well, I mean, that's all we've ever known is prayer. But understand, this group is totally different. They, they have seen Jesus risen again. They have, they have talked with him and heard him teach. Before that, for three years, they listened to him. Some of these brothers, they grew up with him. And now the only way they have to commune with him is through prayer. So they recognized then the importance and the necessity of prayer in their lives. Jesus taught this group how to pray. And this attitude towards prayer then would continue into the formation of the early church. As you read through the book of Acts and other places, you find this, that God's people placed a premium 
on prayer. They would gather together for this purpose, to pray. Paul would write in his letters of the importance of the churches that they would pray. So one of the, God's purposes for the church then is that we would pray. So therefore, we are to give ourselves as Christians to this work. When prayer is offered from the pulpit corporately in a worship service, let us participate in our hearts, offering prayers to the Lord. When one is preaching the word of God, let us offer silent prayers to the Lord that he would use his word in our hearts and empower the preacher. When brothers and sisters in Christ gather for the purpose of prayer, as we do one service a week here in this church, Let us be ashamed if we excuse ourselves from such a time and think, well, that's just unnecessary and extraneous. I don't need to gather with others to pray. Prayer is vital to our walk with God, both individually and corporately. It's the purpose of the church. We have a calling by the Lord to offer prayers on our own and with other believers. There is power in prayer offered to the Lord. Prayer weds our hearts to the Lord's that we may submit ourselves to him and trust him. We also know that God listens to his children and answers those prayers in his perfect way and time. Prayer glorifies God. So therefore, the church is to be a place of prayer offered to the Lord. This is a whole message in and of itself, but we have to move on, okay? Number five, the purpose for the church is missions. And I want to point to you, first of all, to Acts, you're in Acts chapter one, look back up a few verses to verse eight, and we're going to see the local evangelism that Jesus has called the church to undertake. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now this verse is a familiar text for any, for any church that has you know, a missions program. It is the mandate from Jesus to his disciples that they be witnesses of and for him throughout the world. It is the calling of the church to engage in reaching others with the gospel. And so understand this. There is a universal call to disciples. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus, you are called to be a witness of the Lord to other people. This is not an optional, well, I don't do that, I don't have that. We are called to be witnesses. The question becomes not will you be a witness, but how effective will your witness be? Individually, believers are responsible to build connections and relationships and bridges to others for the purposes of sharing the gospel. We must find ways then to put ourselves in the way of other people who need the Lord. There is a call of a local body of believers then to reach their immediate area for the Lord. This is the local evangelism. What did Jesus say? The disciples were tasked with beginning the work of the gospel in Jerusalem the hub of all of the spiritual life and really social life of Israel. They were to go first to their immediate area and reach people with the message of the gospel. 
And so we are tasked with reaching those in our immediate vicinity. One of the places that is most local to you, then, is your own, is your own circle of people in your life. Your family needs the gospel. I don't know about you, okay, but I found as a parent I'm raising some pagans, okay? There are some people in our house that need the gospel. I apologize if you're listening in the nursery right now, Joanna, okay? <laughs> that could be a spouse, could be children, could be other relatives that you know. Your neighbors need the gospel. Your coworkers need the gospel. Your community needs the gospel. These are all people who are part of our local circles and community. Now, you may have family that lives far apart from you who need the gospel, but I would argue those are people in your immediate circle of influence because you're related to them. If you don't know someone with whom you can share the gospel, it is your calling as a Christian to go find someone to share the gospel with them. And sometimes we have that conversation. We're like, well, who do you, well, I don't know anybody. Well, find somebody, right? Join a kickball team, right? Go do this, go do that. Why? Because I want to build relationships to share the gospel. I want to have opportunities for the Lord. You cannot go and make disciples if you don't know anyone who's not a disciple. As a body of believers, a church then can band together and create even larger gospel opportunities in their own area. Churches have employed various programs and outreaches over the years in order to reach others with the gospel. And these can be good things as long as the right focus is taken. Let me give you an example from our own church life to make the point. Each year in June, in the last few years, we've engaged in a community outreach we call Family Fun Fair. We have a group from Davidson who comes up. They're coming up again this year, and they help us uh, put on a, an out, a, a fun activity for families with games and food and those sorts of things. And the purpose is what? To build relationships in our community, to seek to find people that we can reach with the gospel. Right? That's what we always say. Now, if this focus ceases to be let's make connections for the gospel and instead becomes, well, let's try to advertise our church or let's put on some good community service or have a fun clean activity, then I would argue we have failed to keep the focus of this event in its proper place. Because it's not about exalting Beaverton Baptist Church. It's not about providing something good for people to do. It's about providing opportunities for us as a body of believers to connect with other people for the purpose of reaching them with the gospel. The local community a church belongs to is a mission field right in your own backyard. And of course, there are people then in a calling to reach around the world. Not only do we see the idea of, of local evangelism that is the purpose of the church and missions, but secondly, there is this idea of global evangelism. Turn over in Acts to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we're going to meet these guys named Paul and Barnabas. They have been set apart by God to go out and spread the gospel to other places. Acts chapter 13, verse 3, we read this. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now this is the church in Antioch that does this. The reach of the church was never intended to be just in one particular area. 
Jesus did not say, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and after you've reached the frozen chosen, that's it. Okay? As commanded by the Lord, the reach of the gospel was to spread abroad over all the earth. And we must admit, it is not possible for every individual Christian to go throughout the earth and spread the gospel. Sometimes our lives do not afford us those opportunities to go to some of the farthest reaches of the earth. It should be the goal of every believer to look outside of his comfort zone for opportunities to share the gospel with others. I would encourage you that as a Christian, you should be looking for opportunities to get outside of what you're normally comfortable with for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Whether that means going over to your neighbor and talking to them, whether that means reaching out to a coworker, or whether that means looking to go and visit a missionary and be a part of their ministry that they're doing, even if it's just for a few days. But it is impossible for every Christian to go to every end of the earth. Therefore, churches partner with those who could spread the gospel to other parts of the earth. Paul did this at least three times in his life that's recorded in the book of Acts. And in Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas preparing for the first of these trips. They would travel throughout the Roman Empire, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And as they did so, God would keep his promise and grow his church as Paul and others like him faithfully sought to make disciples. They were ordained by the church. They were sometimes supported by the church. Paul, sometimes on these trips, would make a living for himself through his profession of tent making. And today... Most churches are no strangers to missions programs. In fact, if you looked on the back of your bulletin today, you would see we're praying for one of our missionaries. You walk back in the fellowship hall, you would see those missionaries that we are supporting as a church. It is the job of local churches to make efforts to spread the gospel abroad. And that is most effectively done by developing and maintaining relationships with missionaries as a church body. Now, If these missionaries are going to be personal representatives of your church in another part of the world for the sake of the gospel, it stands to reason then that you should know who these people are. I just tell you personally, I don't think it does us any good to just write as many checks as we can, to send as many people out as we can, and not know a single one of them. Because these are personal representation and representatives of our church abroad. Nor does it do us any good to just give to some unknown fund that we hope it supports the right things. Again, look at what Paul and Barnabas did. They're sent out specifically from this church. It is good stewardship then to be strategic as a church in planning out and executing your mission's philosophy as a church. Individuals and bodies of believers can and should financially, prayerfully, spiritually, and relationally support missionaries and in turn then these missionaries are responsible to the churches that they partner with when Paul and Barnabas finished this trip we see what they did upon their return go across a couple pages here to Acts chapter 14 verses 27 and 28 and when they arrived this is they're back in Antioch and gathered the church together they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. It is the duty of those who are supported to return back to those who support them and share with them what God is doing. Now, I think that the greatest thing a church can do 
is send people to the mission field and into the ministry. I said it earlier that not everyone has the opportunity to go to every part of the earth. But there are some within a church that God is calling into the ministry. Whether it be as pastors or missionaries doing the work of the gospel. And I would encourage you as a believer to be ever considering of these things in your heart. Is this something that God is calling me to do? And be purposeful to lay the groundwork for that in your own life and living that out. God calls men into the pastorate from churches. He calls men and women into missions work from local bodies. And it should be the goal of a church not to hoard godly people into one small place, but to build them up and send them out in service to the Lord. That's the goal of the church. And lastly, within this idea of missions, then, is there's also a ministry of helps that can be administered to others. You're still in the book of Acts. Go back to Acts chapter 2. We're just taking a tour today, okay? Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. You read this in our scripture reading this morning. It says this, And all who believed were gathered together, or sorry, were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In 1 John three seventeen, we read this, But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet clothes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So here is a practical way in which the mission's work of the church can be advanced. We see that believers in the early church ministered to one another, helping each other with needs. Please don't get this. I'm not going to go off on a rabbit trail, but don't get this out of whack here, okay? This is not a socialist society that they were creating where everyone is equal and we're all the same. And what they're doing is they're building a community that helps one another as they have need. Because over the coming years, they're going to have great needs as they face persecution for the gospel. They needed each other. And so they gave to each other freely, helping one another. It is an outward expression of God's love. One of the things we understand is this. Christians should be helping other Christians. We should be helping one another with the work of the gospel and ministering to each other's needs. That is what a church is called to do. We may not all be called to lay down our lives for the gospel, but we are all called to live our lives for the gospel. That is the calling of our hearts and lives. What God has blessed us with individually and corporately is an opportunity then to bless other people. A body of believers provides unique opportunities for you to use the gifts that God has given you to minister to other people. It deepens discipleship and in some cases opens opportunities for the gospel. We can reach beyond even our brothers and sisters in Christ and reach into our communities and show the love of Jesus Christ. No, the church is not a welfare system, but we are called to show the love of Christ to those in need beginning with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is part of of a missions-minded mentality in our churches and our hearts. And lastly, today, as we look at the purposes of the church, we see the ordinances that God has ordained for the church to carry out. There are two of these listed in Scripture, and the first is baptism. We look, first of all, at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. 
Jesus says here to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here are the ordinances that God has given the church to observe. Now, an ordinance is a ceremony or an observance that is commanded by God. Now, sometimes, very quickly, there is a word here that is ascribed to these, and the word is sacrament. We shy away, steer clear of that word because the Catholic Church has hijacked that word, okay? And it has come to mean a means of grace and favor from God. I want to be very clear. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are the two ordinances that God has given to the church, are not a means of salvation. They are not a means of earning God's favor in our lives. They are obedience to what God has called us to do. They are observances Jesus commanded to uphold. The first of these is baptism. Jesus commanded this in the Great Commission, which is the passage we just read. And we understand then that baptism is a sign of identification. It symbolically represents dying to an old way of life and embracing what is new. Again, I want to be very clear. Baptism does not save you from sin. If someone accepted Jesus and never followed him in believer's baptism, they do not go to hell. And perhaps the clearest and oldest example is the thief on the cross who accepted and believed in Jesus, right? And Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll be in heaven. Faith alone saves. But I would then say this. But the faith that saves is never alone. And so therefore, why do we follow the Lord in baptism? Because we have believed in Jesus. He has changed us and in obedience to him. This is what he has called us to do. He has called us to follow him in believers' baptism. It is a step of obedience to God. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you want to go to heaven, keep my commandments, right? And the only way to love God, the way that he loved us, is for him to do his work in us to save us. And so then we follow him in baptism as a public declaration to others that I have placed my faith in Jesus alone. It is a union with Christ. It pictures his death, his burial, and resurrection, which is credited to our account in salvation. It is a declaration to others, this is what has happened in my life. It is not a cleansing from sin. It is not something that needs to be done over and over again. It's not to be repeated. If you disobey the Lord and you come back into fellowship with him, you don't have to go, well, I've got to be baptized again to get myself clean from the sin. It didn't cleanse you to start with. That baptism didn't save you or take away your sin before, and it won't this time. And just as salvation from sin through trusting in Jesus is a one-time genuine decision that you must make, so too is baptism. We see in the ministry of Jesus that he himself was baptized and in so doing set an example for us to follow. You do not need to be baptized for salvation. You do need to be baptized to be an obedient Christian. There is a difference 
But there's an important thing to understand. One purpose of the church is to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus said that. It is the church's mission to make disciples. Part of making disciples, Jesus said, is baptizing. You do not need to be a perfect person to join a church. Thank goodness for that, right? One pastor said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, because it won't be perfect, right? But you should be an obedient Christian seeking to grow and change, right? Because that's what God has called us to do. So if you will not be obedient to God in this very first foundational step of identification, of being baptized, what else is going to hold you back in life? You would be hard-pressed to find a Christian who says, I don't need to be baptized, but I know I'm right with God and everything else. Because you won't take this step. How can we be right over here? It's a foundational step of obedience. Baptism is an incredible joy and a momentous occasion. I would argue that baptism, the day you were baptized, is even bigger than the day you got married. Because you're declaring to the world, I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus. If you as a Christian have never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, let me tell you this. You're in the right place to ask questions. You're in the right place to seek it out. And say, yeah, I want to know more about that. Because again, there's a lot we could say here, and I'm just trying to squeeze it in. But if you have questions about that, about what does it mean to be baptized and, and how does that work, I'd love to connect with you after the service today or sometime that's convenient for you. But we need to move on and look lastly today at the last thing in the ordinance that God has given for the church to observe, and that is the Lord's Supper. Turn with you would to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll finish our time in this chapter. This is the second ordinance that was given by Jesus to the church. And as God's institution, the church is commanded to observe and administer these things. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and eventual crucifixion, he instituted this ordinance. The Lord's Supper, it was taken from the, the elements of the Passover meal, which pointed ahead to the coming of the Lamb of God. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. And so, he instituted this ordinance that represented his work. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus says this is what represents the work I am doing. And again, I want to be clear. The Lord's Supper, or sometimes referred to as communion, is a representation of Jesus and his finished work on the cross on our behalf. There is juice and there is bread, right? Those are the elements of the Lord's Supper. And I want to tell you, those are just juice and bread. They do not become the Lord's body and his blood. The bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus in which he lived perfectly on this earth, fulfilling the law of God. 
That body was given for us, pierced for our sin. The juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And throughout scripture, we see the price of sin. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The sacrifices showed us that in the Old Testament. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's what's represented here. So we partake of the Lord's Supper then in order to commemorate his work for us. We partake of the Lord's Supper to declare, Paul says, the gospel until he returns. The gospel isn't just for those who've never accepted Jesus. As a Christian, you need to proclaim the gospel daily to yourself. That this is who Jesus is and what he's done. We need to be reminded of Christ's work for us. We need to continue to live in his power and in light of his work for us. And so then the Lord's Supper is a, is a solemn occasion. It commemorates a momentous event. It is the moment at which everything in history changed. It pictures the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And so very clearly then this, the Lord's Supper is for believers, not for unbelievers. If you do not know the Lord, okay, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there is nothing in the Lord's Supper to be found for you. You're not going to find forgiveness. You're not going to find redemption of your soul. You're not going to find some salve for your conscience. It is a memory, it is a memorial of what Jesus has done for those who have placed faith in him. Furthermore here, Paul instructs believers to take serious stock of their lives before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Continue reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What is the thing we need to understand here? If you have a known sin in your life as a Christian between you and God, it needs to be dealt with before you approach the Lord's table. It is not the pastor's job or any other spiritual leader's job to come to you and say, yep, you're right with God. Okay, you don't need a priest. You are, as we looked at Peter, you are a priest if you know the Lord, right? You can approach the presence of God. You're responsible for your own heart and life. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So partaking of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, while harboring disobedience in your heart to the Lord doesn't make you right with God either. You know, we, we can't approach this and say, well, I mean, God, I know we're not really right. I know I did this. I know I shouldn't have said that. I know I should But, you know, I'll do this and we'll all be square. Paul says quite the opposite. If you do this, you're actually going to incur God's judgment in your life. He disciplines his children. Those who belong to him are disciplined for their sin. So it is one of the purposes of the church to partake in the Lord's Supper, but it is the responsibility of individual believers to seriously consider themselves before the Lord. It is better to not partake of the Lord's Supper and make things right with God and others than to put on a show thinking someone will judge you because you didn't partake. 
This is part of actively growing and changing in the Lord. God's purposes for his church exalt his name on earth, expanding his mission in the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike. These are the purposes of the church. For God's glory, he established this body and sets the mission that we seek to carry out with his help. We glorify him, proclaiming the word, building up believers, engaging in prayer, spreading the gospel, and upholding the ordinances. But without the foundation of God, there would be many vain rituals in church buildings. And indeed, there are religions and sometimes professing Bible-believing churches who have sought to divorce the actions from the foundational truth of God's word and from the motive of glorifying God. There are also those who have abandoned correct practices prescribed by God while claiming to hold forth the truth. We need to know and obey God's word as a church. Only then can we carry out those purposes for his glory. Today, we have the privilege of engaging in one of those purposes of the church. We turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper. As was mentioned at the end of the message This is ordained by Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. We turn our hearts and minds now towards the finished work of Jesus on the cross.